scripture readings, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Hear God's word as we prepare for the sermon. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this evening will come from the book of Philemon in the New Testament, the book of Philemon. We will focus on the first six verses. As I mentioned earlier in the service, we're focusing on giving thanks and That's for two reasons. One is, obviously, because Thanksgiving is coming up on us this week, and it's a great time in our culture and in our families to give thanks to God and to stop down and pause and to let God know that we are grateful for what He has done for us and our families and the state and the country in which we live and all of those things. But also because it's a time of transition as we leave behind the gospel of Luke and make our way towards a new season of of worship and preaching. Philemon has been on my mind for quite a while is a very small book and a, a book that is very important for us. It packs a lot of punch. Many times these days, if you pay attention, you'll hear pastors and and ministers go into Philemon to talk about all of the cultural relevance as Paul in this little letter did his best to undo the uh, the cultural acceptance of slavery in the Roman Empire in that time. Well, my focus this evening has nothing to do with that. My focus this evening is much more personal, much more pastoral. 
And I want us to not only give thanks, but I personally want to take this time to give thanks to you and thanks to God for you, I should say, as we make our way through this passage. I want to echo Paul in a couple of different ways as we make some connections to our experience together as a congregation of God's people. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from the book of Philemon. And I want you to hear the first six verses of this beautiful little letter. The word of God says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. For the sake of Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. A few years ago, the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development estimated that 40% of the ministers starting out, will not last five years. Seventy percent of those who enter the ministry will not last ten years. Only one out of every ten ministers will actually retire as a minister in some form. Just before this report was published, they said that over 1,700 pastors left the ministry every month the year before the report was published. Over 1,300 pastors were terminated by their local church each month before it was released, many without cause. If you're a pastor and you read stats like that, it can shake you down to your bones. If you're a congregation that cares about your pastor, it might shake you down to your bones as well. It's possible that these statistics vary within the PCA, but I want you to know that I find the report to be very sobering. It's sobering enough to make you and me shiver. If this report is true, it means that some of the pastors that you know, some of the pastors you have known, some that you will know, will not finish what they started. It's to say that some of us will not make it to the end. But facts are stubborn things, aren't they? It's hard to avoid the facts and the realities of the difficult calling of ministry and the challenges that are faced within any congregation. It's in light of these harsh realities that I've noticed in recent years a slew of books and articles and DVDs and conferences and materials that are all geared towards helping us combat these forces and shore up at-risk pastors. We're told in no uncertain terms that this is 
a dangerous calling, a hazardous vocation. And it seems that every Monday there are three or four articles floating around Facebook trying to talk pastors off of the ledge, so to speak. Well, many of these resources, sadly enough, and perhaps ironically enough, have been produced by pastors who have at one time or another crashed and burned. And they lived long enough to tell others about it and now want to help others avoid the risks. And we're told in no uncertain terms that ministry is hard and it's dangerous and it's hard for the man. It's hard for his family. It's hard on the church. Pastors can think of many reasons why they should leave gospel ministry. Ask any pastor on a Monday morning. Maybe he's over it by Monday afternoon. But if you ask him on Monday morning, he can give you a dozen reasons off the top of his head why this should be the last day. But then usually by Tuesday or Wednesday, he's thought of two dozen reasons of why he should stay. He goes back and forth. In my experience, if I developed a soundtrack for pastoral ministry, one of the songs that would be on loop, one of the songs that would be constantly played, it would probably get more hits than any of the other song would be that song by The Clash. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, without even knowing, the only song you know from The Clash, right? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. If I stay, it will be double. So come on and let me know, should I stay or should I go? And that's the song that most pastors I know, including myself, sing or hum, especially on Mondays. Several years ago, one megachurch pastor convinced a generation of pastors of this thing that he called Bread Truck Monday. Bread Truck Monday. Bread Truck Monday simply meant that Monday is the time when pastors think of doing anything else. Anything would be better than doing what I did yesterday or doing what I did last week. And I could just drive a bread truck and I would just deliver the bread to the customers and punch out at the end of the day and go home and then start the next day. And that's it. I wouldn't have to worry. The bread doesn't argue with me. The bread doesn't leave me. The bread doesn't complain. You see where they go with that. The truck doesn't belong to me. All I have to do is deliver the bread and go home. I used to call Mondays manic depressive Mondays. Because so many weird things would happen on Sunday. And my wife said, you shouldn't make jokes about that because some people really do suffer with mania and depression. I said, yeah, you're looking at one, right? It's a weird kind of thing here. So I'll tell you all of that really downer stuff and put you in a ditch because what I'm about to tell you is a little bit better, okay? So let me see if I can pull you up a little bit. After our crazy meltdown about four years ago, something changed in me. Something changed in my perspective. And if you weren't here, I won't, I won't go through all of that. And if you were here, I don't want to reopen old wounds. I simply want you to know that in a, in a moment in which any of us should have collapsed and caved in and quit, you all stuck with it. And I had a change of attitude in that time. Something uh, led me, God's grace led me to repent of some things. And I had a new outlook. And ever since then, things have been a little bit different, at least in the way I look at things on Monday. Some of our deacons still ask me, hey, how's Bread Truck Monday? I, I love the fact that you guys check up on me, but... Those bread truck Mondays are fewer and far between, believe it or not. And that's by God's grace. I still have some rough days here and there. 
And I even had a couple of rough days this past week. Ministry is weird. It's weird and it's hard. But I want you to know that things have gotten much better. And my outlook on life and ministry has, has changed dramatically. And here's why. I've given a lot of thought about these kinds of things over the, the last few years. And it seems to me that there is this unsung secret of perseverance and endurance that's embedded in the Apostle Paul's writings. He tells you everywhere what this secret is, but it's kind of an open secret that no one thinks about. And we just read about it in this little letter of Philemon. And the secret is this. It's gratitude. Thankfulness. Thanksgiving. That's what it is. An attitude of gratitude covers a multitude of disquietude. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but it'll help me tomorrow morning when I wake up and wonder what all this was about tonight. An attitude of gratitude covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? You see this in your own life. You can sit around in in self-pity and wonder why things aren't better and why they're worse and, you know, why this is happening to you and don't you deserve something different? You could do that. But if you stop and do with the old hymn that we like to make fun of sometimes, but the old hymn, if you just stop and count your blessings and name them one by one, then it really will surprise you what the Lord has done. You will be amazed at the grace and mercy God has lavished upon you. So this has been the secret working in my heart, working over my heart for the last three or four years. It's this notion of gratitude. I read recently that someone referred to the Apostle Paul as the Apostle of Thanksgiving. And I came across this really uh, interesting article where someone has taken all of the statements where Paul mentions gratitude and thanksgiving and giving thanks. And they compiled them together and even categorized them for us. And I'm not going to take time to read all of that. You can see it on our blog later if you like to read sermon notes. I'll tuck it in there for you for your uh, benefit. It is delightful to read, by the way. It's so encouraging. But I want you to know is that here Paul is writing. This is just one example of what we just read. He's writing to a friend about a very dicey situation involving a slave who has escaped and ended up with Paul. And then Paul has to weigh out the options. And then Paul's like, I got to send this guy back. I'm sending this slave back to you, not just as a slave, but as a brother. That's the context of the letter. So Paul has some really hard things to say to this man, but he, he frames it all around uh, gratitude. Right? He couches it in gratitude. Gratitude is the nest in which Paul is about to put this difficult teaching. So Paul comes across as this messenger of thanksgiving, this model of giving thanks. And you might even say he's one of the most grateful men in all of the Bible. It takes it makes a lot of sense if you think about who Paul was before Christ versus who Paul was in Christ. When you look at who he was before Christ, I mean, he's rising to the top of his field. He is a lawyer. He's very successful. He has a lot of influence and power. He's an academic. He's a genius in many ways. He has accomplished so many things. He's a rising star among Jewish people, not only within the religion, but even politically. He's a rising star. And then Jesus comes and just wrecks his life. 
And Paul wakes up flat of his back, looking around, can't see. He's blinded by the glory of Jesus. His whole life is unraveling around him, and yet he lives the rest of his life in Christ as a man grateful that instead of killing him, instead of taking him out, instead of exacting vengeance, executing justice upon him, Christ had mercy. He says in writing to one of his young pastor friends, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent man. And yet God had mercy on me. God was faithful even when I wasn't faithful. And God has called me to this ministry of the gospel. And so even when he was rattling his chains and and looking out through prison bars, he found that he could be grateful because God had been so merciful to him. And so out of that grace of God, the gratitude at work in his heart spills over into his letters. Discovering this little secret of gratitude has helped me immensely as a pastor and as a person. It's helped me as a husband in my marriage and a father with my children. Maybe it'll help you as well if you think about different ways to be grateful in your life, not just one day a week or one day a year, but if you think about how to be grateful day by day, what has God done for you? And here's how it makes a difference. I want to give you some contrast here. I'm going to think about how we typically do things. This is how pastors might approach life. I'm not saying it's the right way, but it's, it, it happens, okay? So easy for a pastor, and I will say it just comes naturally because we're weak in the flesh, but it's so easy and natural to sit up late on a Sunday night and navel gaze. It's so easy to wake up Monday morning and wallow in self-pity. Why isn't my church growing? Why isn't it larger? Why don't we have more... All of that. It's so easy to sit around and think of all the things that might have been, that should have been, could have been, right? We think of all these possibilities. It's so easy for us to think about each other with a critical spirit, to look at the people around us, the people in our flock with a judgment and a critical spirit towards them for all the things they should have done but didn't, all the things they should not have done but did. We become judges with evil thoughts. It's easy to focus on what you don't have and what's lacking and what's missing. All of that is very easy to do. It's also easy to feel like the failure of failures. It's easy to do all of that. And worse. If you just set aside the gospel of God's grace in Christ. Just do it for a moment. Forget the gospel for a moment and then you're in that mode. It's easy to do all of that if you set aside the gospel of God's grace in Christ or if you see yourself and see others around you. Not through the lens of the gospel, but apart from the gospel. If you focus on things seen instead of things unseen. If you turn inward And navel gaze instead of turning outward and gaze anew at the grace and glory of God in Christ. They say that pastors are overly introspective. That's an understatement, if you ask me. We're terribly introspective, sensitive, sometimes to the wrong things, sometimes overly sensitive to the right things. So some of that is right and good. But what pastors really need 
is to learn to be extrospective. We need to learn to look outside of ourselves and not to men. Look outside of ourselves, not to our culture. Look outside of ourselves to Christ. We need to look away to the person and work of Jesus. And we need to do that because that enables us to lead our flock to look away from their own weaknesses and foolishness to the power and the wisdom of the cross. In other words, if the flock knows that the pastor is sitting around in self-pity and navel-gazing, eventually the flock is going to do the same thing. There must be something we should be worried about. I don't know what it is, but maybe if we look deep within, we'll find it. This is how Paul approached ministry. He could recognize his own weaknesses and failings inside of himself, and they were all real, but then he could look away to Christ, and he would, he would find the wisdom and the power of the cross in Jesus. That's why he's able to write these things to his brother and his friend Philemon. He could tell him of how much the grace and peace of God are at work in his life and wish it for his friend. He could remind his friend of how thankful he is for what he's doing with that little house church meeting around him. Well, by God's providence and grace, I just completed 25 years of ministry. I served as your pastor. I have served as your pastor for a dozen years now. And my relationship with this congregation actually goes back longer than a dozen years. It goes back about 15 years. Some of you were here and you remember when our family needed support to go do mission work. And this congregation was one of the first to respond to our request and plea. And so we've been connected with this church for about 15 years now. That means that more than half of my ministry has been spent has been invested with you. And you know as well as I do that we have been through many ups and downs together. Too many to recount at this time. And I want you to know the bittersweet news is this. That as long as we stick together, we're going to continue to go through many ups and downs together. That is the nature of things. That is the rhythm of Dying and rising in union with Christ, which is what we're doing as we bear the cross. So although I don't say it often enough, I, I don't say it often enough, and I, and I do try to show this in various ways. Um, I want to echo Paul when I say, I thank my God always when I remember you, both in my prayers and outside my prayers. And when I say I remember you, I don't mean I remember you as this sort of blurry uh, aggregate of people. I mean, I remember you specifically. I think about each and every one of you and things that that you have done and things you are doing for the sake of the gospel. I think of the way that you visit widows and widowers and the way you take beans to them and nice cards and take them to movies. And the way you give rides to people who don't have cars, but who want to come and worship with us. I think of the way you make communion every week and put it together for us and bring it in here. I think of the way you teach children and struggle to make the gospel clear to them. And the way you open your homes 
and show hospitality to one another? The way you overlook the stains and the spots that we leave in your house after MCs because there's something more important to you than that stuff. I think of your perseverance through hard times. Some of you could be anywhere doing anything else. And I've said this to your faces. Some of you amaze me. I can't believe you're still here. But I'm thankful you are. Not just for my sake, but for each other. I'm thankful for your endurance and perseverance in the gospel. And I could go down the list and I think of each person of this congregation and the specific things that you sacrifice and the different ways you serve and the, the way you do things secretly and quietly where only the Lord knows. The way you sacrifice in your own giving, your tithes and offerings, such as they are, are a glory to God and a benefit to the ministry of the gospel in this place. So yes, I thank my God always when I remember you. I've been encouraged by people in the last few years to pull up my tent pegs and go somewhere else. And surely there's a larger, more dynamic church that I could be a part of. And you see how people appeal to your flesh. And I think there's nowhere else I want to be. Why would I go somewhere else? These people have laid down their lives for Christ and we've done this together. So I'm not planning to go anywhere. Size isn't everything, is it? This is all the glory we need. So I think about you when I pray for you. I think about you when I'm driving around town and I remember the different places we've met for counseling and marriage or had coffee together or laughed. Places where we got together and had a beer and enjoyed some great conversation over ridiculous things. This is what community life looks like. But above all, I'm thankful for you because I don't just hear about your love and faith that you have towards Jesus. I get to see it every week and sometimes multiple times a week, depending on the rhythm and routine of our life. And I'm so thankful that I get to have a front row seat to all of that. To see God's grace at work in you. We're not much to look at, are we? I mean, most people would frown upon us, but they don't know what God is doing among us and what he has done and what he's doing for the next generation among us. So I'm so thankful to see the love and the faith of Christ at work in you. I'm happy to see the gospel is taking hold of your life and your heart. And then I get to be a part of that in some small way. I'd be the first to say that I acknowledge that we have not grown as much as we hope and pray to grow. I know that can be terribly discouraging for some of you. And it has been discouraging for me at times. But I want to pray as Paul prayed for that little house church. Did you notice he wrote this to a little house church? Probably smaller than this congregation but to the church that met in Philemon's home. And he says, I'm praying that the sharing of your faith with each other and others will be effective. And I'm praying that as well. That it will be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. It's not about competing with other churches around us. It's not about making a name for ourselves. It's just about living faithfully in Christ. And that's what I'm praying for. So if we're bearing witness to the gospel in our part of the world, yeah, we can make improvements and we could probably do more and 
do it better in some ways, but we're trying, okay? We're trying. We get some credit for trying. We're trying to do that. But we know that God is the one who gives the increase. And as He is willing and able to do so, we'll take what we get as He gives it. And then Paul says something really beautiful here that I would like to say as well. I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. And I know that as you've refreshed each other's hearts, uh, you've also refreshed mine. I think of specific moments when uh, things seem to be at the, at the end. When we didn't think we were going to make it another month, another day. And sharing a burger or a beer or a moment of prayer, a glass of water, pots of coffee, conversation, tons of tacos. I can't even tell you how many tacos I've eaten. All of that, all of that is because this congregation of God's people has demonstrated the love, hope, and faith of the gospel. And I'm so thankful for that. It's given me so much joy and so much comfort to know that we are in this together. I'm not in it alone. You're not in it alone. And God has been glorified through these things. We have a lot to be thankful for. We could wallow in self-pity. We could navel-gaze. We could talk about all the things we're missing and lacking and how things could be better. We could do all of that stuff if we wanted. But that's a natural response, isn't it? A non-natural response, a faithful response says, no, we're going to look at what God is doing and what God has done among us. And for that, we will give thanks and praise all day long, even into the night. And so hopefully you've been encouraged by some of these things to know not only do I love you, but more importantly, God loves you in Christ. And I hope that you find love and comfort and peace in your hearts because of that. Well, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us pray.